From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the pancreas remains one of the most difficult cancers to treat. We'll have the latest on combination therapies that are modestly increasing the survival rate. What we've done recently is to have a protocolized approach to these patients where we give them all their chemotherapy, all their radiation therapy prior to their operation. Then we put them through the operation, which is the most maximally invasive component. And we now have data that we've accumulated. We've tripled that survival rate. Also on the program, many new moms get the baby blues, but some go on to develop postpartum depression, a far more serious condition. And population health. Health management. It's a new field of medicine that works to make health care more convenient. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. According to the National Cancer Institute, by the end of this year, close to 50,000 people will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The five-year survival rate for cancer of the pancreas, just a little over 7%. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and we're going to bring you up to date on the latest research and treatments for this challenging disease. Here to do that for us is Dr. Mark Trudy. Dr. Trudy is a cancer surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being on the program, Dr. Trudy. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Trudy, truly a rare disease as cancers go, but unfortunately still almost a death sentence. Yeah, that's the problem with pancreas cancer. As you stated, a little under 50,000 patients will be diagnosed per year. It's about a lifetime risk for anyone in the general population of about 1%. The problem is the death rate due to the cancer, and it's anticipated by 2020, which is less than five years from now, that pancreas cancer will exceed breast cancer in terms of number of cancer deaths, and thus making it the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Why is it that this is such a bad cancer? The problem is twofold. First is there's no early uh, screening for this cancer, so the vast majority of patients that get diagnosed are diagnosed at a very advanced stage when the tumor has already spread from the pancreas to other organ sites, and therefore there's very minimal treatment. The second has to do with the biology of the tumor itself. It's very aggressive. Uh, There's a lot of multiple mutations as opposed to other tumors that are relatively, uh, have minimal uh, biologic diversity, but with with, uh, the pancreas cancer, it's a very aggressive biological tumor. So you, there's no blood test for this tumor, and also what you're suggesting is that by the time people have symptoms, mm-hmm. that it's already spread. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a late sign, typically. How did you get interested in studying or being part of pancreatic cancer as your practice? Probably uh, much of that had to do with some family history. So my father had pancreas cancer when I was a teenager and I got really? into college. Yeah. And, and so did, I assume did not survive or did, did not survive. So yeah, I remember being in college, I was taking a biology course. One of the professors was a pathologist at University of Chicago. You know, I was told the diagnosis and I went to him and then he basically said to say goodbye. And I was like, really? There's no options? And he's like, none. And unfortunately, that's, you know, and that was a long time ago. That was 20, 25 years ago. And even to this day, there's such a great stigma associated with this cancer. And so most people that get the diagnosis, you don't hear about it because they keep quiet because there's such a general sense of nihilism uh, for it. And how old was your father? He was 55. Do you think of that? You must think of that time when you were told of your father's diagnosis and going through that when you go in to talk to patients. Absolutely, each and every time. Every patient I look at, I think of my father and I look at their family and I think of you know myself. And what questions I had that I wish I had answered, I tried to make sure I answered them for them. Had you hoped and do you continue to hope that 
because of your father's experience, your family's experience, that someday there will be better treatments for this disease than in the past? Absolutely. And I think in the last few years, we've actually started to, to make that progress, which I'm really excited about the work we've been doing here at Mayo. So the survival rate is actually better today than it was a decade ago? Uh, the overall survival for all patients is just starting to creep up. It was 5%, now it's 7%. Uh, the group of people that I tend to focus on as a surgeon, as you know, is 50% of patients already present with disease that has spread outside of the pancreas, and unfortunately there's no role for surgical therapy. There's another 50% of patients where we can't see that the tumor has spread, and those are either patients with tumors localized to the pancreas, which we typically call resectable. Those patients typically are treated with an operation and then chemotherapy therapy afterwards, and an even larger percentage of patients who are deemed unresectable. And unfortunately, those patients typically were not offered any type of surgical procedure. We've been focusing on that group of patients, particularly those with those unresectable tumors. And with the advent of significantly improved chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and much more aggressive operations than we had even offered in the past, we're now achieving significant improvements, such that patients who are typically unresectable and had about a one-year survival, our current data that we've just put together, uh, they're achieving survivals of three to four years, which has been unheard of. What are some of the symptoms that bring patients in to see their physicians when it finally, because it finally then at that point is maybe too far past? Yeah. Some general symptoms are uh, weight loss, fatigue, uh, abdominal pain radiating to the back, uh, other symptoms that are more specific to the location of the tumor. If it's located in the head of the pancreas, it can obstruct the bile duct and people can get jaundiced or turn yellow. Their stools change color, they get itchy skin. I presume that the patients who are potentially uh, curable are the ones that still that have the tumor confined to the to the pancreas. Yes, uh, and those are the ones that you can actually remove. Yes, and do you do that? With an, a big, large, open incision, or can you now do that through a scope, through a small telescope? So we're doing both types of operations. You know, some of our my colleagues have advanced the minimally invasive approach. Uh, there's pros and cons to both, and sometimes well, some are technically feasible than others. But yeah, we do both the traditional open resection as well as the minimally invasive laparoscopic resections. The key thing is you need to do the operation correctly. Our first and foremost, you need a negative margin, meaning you can't have any cancer cells left, left behind. The problem is, you know, historical data suggested that at least one in four patients will have a positive margin, and they derive zero benefit from the operation. So from the start, you're already losing 25% of the patients that did not benefit. You said uh, you'd gone from 5% survival to 7% survival. What is, what's giving you that 2 percentage? Part of that has to do with raising awareness and, and telling you know, the clinicians that diagnose these patients that there are options. Traditionally, patients who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer, most providers don't even send, they don't see a surgeon, they don't even see a medical oncologist because it's such a bad prognosis. Why bother? So now we're starting to see a little bit movement to starting to get those consultations and get those therapies. Part of that also has to do with improved uh, surgical survival, which we've shown, uh, as well as better therapies. So in the last you know, five years, we've had a significant uh, uh, revolution in, this, in the chemotherapy for pancreas cancer, where typically would only have about a 9% response rate that is now you know, more than tripled. And then subsequent to that, you also want a good reconstruction so patients have minimal complications. And that's where we've made our, our biggest advances in surgery. These typically were very morbid operation decades ago. Now we're doing them with very, very minimal morbidity or complications and a very minimal uh, operative complications that would lead to a, a death. So. How much does family history play into this? to this disease? Uh, in general, uh, hereditary components of pancreas cancer is a very small subset, only about you know 5 maybe 10% depending on, on, on the kindred, but there is a genetic component. Uh, patients who have a single family member affected with pancreas cancer, a first-degree relative, that 
general risk of 1% jumps to about 4%. If you have a family member who has a first-degree family member who's diagnosed before the age of 60, that jumps to 7 to 8%, and that's my category. So that's my own personal risk of developing this cancer myself, which is probably an impetus for me to you know, keep working on it. Is there anything that you need to do knowing that you have a positive family history to catch it early? Unfortunately, everything that they've tried, uh, screening studies, blood tests, they haven't been uh, applicable, and they have not proven effective in diagnosing the cancer early enough that it's treatable. All right. Obviously, the surgery is better than it used to be. Uh, so what else is better? Is the, is the chemotherapy better? I think chemotherapy has revolutionized pancreatic surgery within the last few years. It, uh, it does a few things. First, it, it treats the whole body. An operation as big as it is, it's still a local procedure. And the problem with pancreas cancer, and even patients who had operation, you know, for 20 years we've been operating on patients with pancreas cancer. They still have very limited survival, you know, one to two years. Well, why is that? Because they have developed spread of the cancer later on. That meaning that the cells were always there. And that's the purpose of chemotherapy, not just to affect the main tumor or shrink it, but to treat these cancer cells that are throughout the body and affect them. The mortality rate for patients who had uh, pancreas surgery was, what, a decade ago, and what, and what is it now? So, in general, how we did things for several decades was if they were resectable, I mean, judged by the surgeon, they'd have an operation and then plus or minus chemotherapy afterwards, depending if they had complications or not. And that has been replicated time and time again. And unfortunately, despite our improvements in our surgical technique, that survival has really not really moved. It's anywhere from 20 to 24 months, which is an average median survival. Half the patients can live that long. What we've done recently, and we've taken some of these from, from other institutions that tried, and I brought this here from the place that I did my fellowship, is to have a protocolized approach to these patients where we give them all their chemotherapy, all their radiation therapy prior to their operation. Then we put them through the operation, which is the most maximally invasive component. And we now have data that we've accumulated. We've tripled that survival rate. So we have patients currently three to four to five years of survival with no evidence of recurrent disease. And the mortality rate for the surgery itself is how much? So that was as high as 10 to 15 percent decades ago. At our, personal, at our own institution here, it's less than 2 percent, and it's less than 5 percent nationally. All right. Well, certainly the surgery is better. The chemotherapy is getting better. Uh, there is some hope for patients with cancer of the pancreas Absolutely. in the future. Absolutely. You know, my, my goal is to, to, to raise awareness, is to not have this become a, continue to be a stigmatic disease, but if you have diagnosed with pancreas cancer, you know, get your first opinion and get a second opinion. There, there's m multiple new options. If you're told you're not resectable, go see someone else and see if there are options. We've been talking about pancreatic cancer with Mayo Clinic cancer surgeon Dr. Mark Trudy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from a pancreatic cancer survivor who has beaten the odds. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we said at the top of the program, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And as we've been saying, the odds of surviving pancreatic cancer beyond a few years are still not that good. Well, in the studio with us is someone who has beaten those odds, Dr. Shives. Mr. Dick Hansen is from Rosemount, Minnesota, a suburb of the Twin Cities, and he is a pancreatic cancer survivor. He's here to share his story. Welcome to the program, Mr. Hansen. Thank you. Mr. Hansen. Great to see you. I guess it's great to be seen, huh? It is. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a family, and how did you end up get, coming to the Mayo Clinic? Well, I uh, yes, I'm from Rosemont area, and I'm 71 years old. I have a wife and uh, two children. My uh, son uh, lives down here. My daughter is a melanoma survivor, mm -hmm. and uh, I have two grandchildren. So I was experiencing a bit of, uh, oh, it kind of felt like a little gas pain in my 
lower abdominal area and it just wouldn't go away. So I went to see my doctor and uh, he did a CAT scan and uh, then he says, let's do an MRI and pretty much had in mind what was happening and he made a phone call down here and uh, next thing I know I'm in a room with Dr. Trudy and uh, Dr. McWilliams and uh, after some studies here we learned that I had uh, pancreatic cancer. So your main symptom was pain? That's what got you in to see your general practitioner? And it was really more of a discomfort. Uh, it There was no pain, like a sharp pain. It was more of a discomfort down there. It just wouldn't go away. All right. So, so what was your first reaction when they told you that you had cancer? Well, of course, is this real? And uh, then I thought, no, uh, this is my lot. You know, I've lived 70 years, three score and ten. I've lived a full life. If this should take my life... Um, I've lived a full life. I've got nothing to complain about. So I'll just go ahead from uh, where I am, and we'll see what uh, what we can do. Dr. Trudy, you had said that uh, thinking about your dad, just being around the two of you as we were getting ready to get set up and record here, you two have a pretty good relationship. I would mm-hmm. assume that the same thing happened with Mr. Hansen. Mm-hmm. He's definitely a character. And, you know... <laughs> You know, the, the interesting thing, he mentioned some of his discomfort. It, it's a, his tumor was located in the body and tail of the pancreas, was relatively large. The problem with tumors in the body and the tail of the pancreas is they don't obstruct the bile duct. And so typically patients with tumors in that location present at a very late stage. So that's always a major concern for, for patients with tumors in that location. How does the overall health and vigor of the patient play into how well they can survive or at least make it through the treatment for pancreatic cancer? It's significant. You know, the majority of patients who get diagnosed with pancreas cancer are in general older. Average age is 71 years of age. Most patients have a lot of weight loss, malnutrition. So when they come to us initially, they're in really bad shape. A lot of traditionally, as I said before, they were treated with a, a major operation, and we, you know, it's predictable why they had significantly bad operative outcomes. You're taking a patient who is obviously not doing very well. The fact that he was in such good shape to begin with, I mean, you just look at him, he's in better shape than I am currently, uh, that has a significant role, how they tolerate the chemotherapy, their psychological status as well, how they uh, get through all the significant the protocol that we have for them, and then the subsequent recovery from the operation, which in his subsequent case was, was amazing. I suspect that you knew early on what the prognosis was. And I think you probably, you probably had chemotherapy plus surgery. Did you and your family ever think, maybe I'll just not get treatment? Oh, no, no. Uh, we went ahead with whatever would come and uh, make the very best of it. Actually, we didn't really have a lot of doubt about uh, how I was going to go through it. There was an optimism that uh, I was going to survive. You were going to be one of the 7% that have pulled through. Yes. And it was kind of fun to watch you out of the corner of my eye as Dr. Trudy at the beginning of this interview was talking about the prognosis for patients who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer because you kind of were putting your shoulders back a little bit and smiling a little bit and kind of must feel like you've dodged a bullet when you hear him talking like that. I feel very fortunate. I have a great support. And I would say the things that really took me through here uh, probably four things. Foremost was prayer. And then the, the other three, I'd say, are on a par with each other. The chemo, a good surgeon, and a positive attitude, an attitude of gratitude. I look at things in a positive way, and uh, I knew that uh, whatever was being done was best for me. And I just went ahead and uh, lived life and uh, just not expecting that I would live 
but never doubting that it was quite possible. Were there any obstacles along the way that you had to overcome? Well, of course, chemo can be a little bit hard on you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I had full Firinox, and I believe that was about the strongest uh, chemo that was available at the time. And when I uh, went into that, they told me, uh, we'll give this to you, but we don't know whether you can uh, continue. Well, I went right on through it in the, the first uh, six treatments, and uh, it didn't really phase me a whole lot. Then I did the uh, radiation, and then I got to this cut-up, and uh, we did the surgery. I came through that doing very well, but then when I got to the second round of uh, chemo, it did affect me. My appetite went away. I lost 23 pounds. Same chemo or different chemo? Same. Yeah, same, same chemo. chemo. Same chemo. And I lost 23 pounds and uh, was weak, but I got through it. And uh, as you can see, I've come back. I've gained my weight back, and uh, I've got my life all back again. Was there ever a point in time when you thought you might lose the battle? Oh, no. No. <laughs> you know, a, g a good outlook was one of those four things he listed. Yeah. Dr. Trudy, what were you going to add? You know, Mr. Hansen's case is particularly special. Uh, his tumor was a lot more advanced than most tumors that we operate on. Uh, so his tumor was large to begin with. It was in a, a location that's typically associated with more advanced disease. In addition, his tumor had spread to multiple lymph nodes, lymph nodes normally beyond the bounds of our typical resection. He would be considered a patient with metastatic pancreas cancer by any definition. The reason why we wanted to consider him for therapies because of our recent outcomes with this approach. We thought he'd be a good candidate for the most uh, effective chemotherapy, but also the most toxic. Uh, he did very well with that, and he had a dramatic response to his tumor. All the lymph nodes had basically all melted away. His tumor had shrunk to about the size of a centimeter, up to about four centimeters in size initially. Uh, so he was a really dramatic responder, and we're seeing such dramatic responses in you know 40 to 50% of patients that are treated this way. Where is research for pancreatic cancer heading? I, I think it's. I think we're really on the cusp of something big. Uh, I take a Another cancer, which typically was very deadly, uh, metastatic colon cancer, colon cancer that spread to the liver. Uh, typically, those patients had dire survival similar to pancreas cancer. Uh, however, over the last 10 to 15 years, we've developed significantly improved chemotherapies. Metastatic colon cancer now is becoming almost a chronic disease. And so that's where I'm trying to bring pancreas cancer to keep patients alive for a significant period of time, not just the one to two years that they've typically been given. Thanks, Dr. Trudy, and thanks, Mr. Dick Hansen. You look fabulous. Congratulations. Thank thanks also to Dr. Mark Trudy for bringing us up to date on the latest research and treatment for pancreatic cancer. Dr. Mark Trudy is a cancer surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, many moms experience a short period of baby blues after giving birth, but postpartum depression lasts longer. It's much more serious and requires medical help. And the emerging field of population health management. It promises to make healthcare more convenient and makes us healthier in the bargain. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. E. coli can spread through contaminated food. Common culprits include undercooked ground beef and raw vegetables like lettuce and spinach. E. coli is a very common bacteria, so uh, most of the time E. coli doesn't cause any, any kind of problem at all. There are certain strains of E. coli that can cause problems. Dr. David Claypool says those problems include diarrhea, abdominal pain, and nausea. People with severe symptoms are at risk for kidney failure. 
E. coli can affect anyone exposed to the bacteria, but young children and older adults are at higher risk for problems, as are people with weakened immune systems. In most cases, treatment is simply rest and fluids, but... When it doesn't go away or you're having nausea and vomiting or diarrhea to the point you're starting to feel weak or dizzy or dehydrated, then you need to be seen. In the meantime, the best way to avoid E. coli is to wash your hands, your food, and thoroughly cook that burger, too. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The birth of a baby can trigger a jumble of powerful female emotions in a new mom. Sometimes it's good to be a guy, you know? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Joy, excitement, to anything from that to fear and anxiety. But can, it can also lead to something unexpected, and that is depression. Many new moms experience the blues after giving birth, a period of mood swings, crying spells, difficulty sleeping. These baby blues can begin within a few days after delivery and may last up to about two weeks. Uh, but some mothers experience more severe, long-lasting forms of depression, known as postpartum depression. Postpartum depression isn't a character, character flaw or a weakness. It's simply a complication of giving birth. And getting help for it is important for recovery. Here to explain postpartum depression and how it's treated is Mayo Clinic Advanced Practice Provider, Julie Lampa. She is a certified nurse midwife and writes the Pregnancy and You blog on mayoclinic.org. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you, Julie. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, this uh, postpartum depression showed up on everyone's radar because we had a celebrity who said right. almost a year out that she was having mm-hmm. trouble with postpartum depression. I suppose you said this is a great opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, well, actually, I was fortunate enough to have... Yahoo contact uh, Mayo Clinic to, you know, get expertise into their article. And so I was able to speak with a writer at Yahoo. And that was, you know, just one day after Hayden came out with her postpartum depression and inpatient admission into the hospital. So yeah, it's been an amazing opportunity to talk about it as well as about one week after that, Drew Barrymore also came out. So I think we will just continue to probably see people sharing their stories. What is the clinical (laughs) definition of postpartum depression? Right. So as you alluded to, the first two weeks of having minor depression or anxiety type issues, that kind of emotional roller coaster can be very normal and that is seen in probably about 80% of women. Um, So postpartum depression would classically be defined as any worsening symptoms that would occur from about that two week time frame postpartum all the way through the first one year of having a baby. Do we have any idea what causes this? Actually, we don't. It is probably a combination of hormonal fluctuations, um, lack of sleep, um, and just obviously big life changes. So I suppose the levels of uh, female hormones, estrogen, progesterone, go mm-hmm. way down after mm-hmm. delivery? Correct. And that may have some mm-hmm. bearing on this problem? Mm-hmm. Yep. So you, you, it's sort of a spectrum, isn't it, between mm-hmm. baby blues and postpartum depression? Mm-hmm. And how long, the baby blues, if they lasted how long, would you then become concerned? Well, baby blues, that definition would just be within those first two weeks. So really anything after the two weeks. There are certain women that are at risk, right? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So I would say that the 
the very, very highest risk people are certainly people that have had history of postpartum or sorry, history of, de- of any kind of depression. And especially if it was most frequently um, noticed during the pregnancy. So it's very important to screen women for depression during the pregnancy. Um, certainly women who have history of postpartum depression. And, you know, I actually want to go back one step. I have a feeling that over the next years, postpartum depression, that terminology is going to be changing to more of something that is a little bit more encompassing. So it's probably going to move more towards like a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder because we're realizing that mood changes postpartum and during the pregnancy aren't necessarily always depression. It could, it could be anxiety issues. And so I think people who just have anxiety but not depression right now are kind of lumped into the diagnosis of postpartum depression when really it's more anxiety. I've always wondered, uh, you mentioned there's so many changes that go on, of course, when you have a baby, both mm-hmm. in your family, in your house, and with your body. Right. Does it make a difference if it's the first baby mm-hmm. versus follow-up children. It always seems like that first one just rocks your world because everything is so different. Yeah, and that's exactly the terminology that I used in my blog was I think the baby (laughs) should be born with a a sign about to rock your world. Um, You know, actually statistically I'm not sure what it is, but I do believe that probably first-time moms are probably more at risk um, because, you know, I always feel comfortable that if, if I'm seeing a mom in the hospital or a postpartum and they're on their third or fourth baby with no history of postpartum depression, that makes me feel more comfortable that it's probably not going to happen. However, that certainly not is a blanket statement. And Drew Barrymore made that comment, especially in her article, that, um, you know, she, here she had no problems with her first and then and then did with her second. So you mentioned one of the risk factors or a couple of them is a, a prior history of postpartum depression or simple depression at some other point in their lives. Uh, is there anything related to the pregnancy that, that might be a, set you up for postpartum depression yeah. if you had a difficult pregnancy or a C-section or yeah. any factors there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So certainly difficult pregnancies, you know, medically difficult pregnancies um, that caused more stress than, than normal. Maybe you've had a, um, a baby that had issues or concerns, and there's certainly, if you have... Um, you know, a birth experience that wasn't um, optimally what you wanted, or maybe very unfortunately, there was some sort of a bad outcome with your baby, then of course, those are really going to elevate your risk. All right, we're going to talk about treatment, just a couple of minutes uh, remaining. So I'm sure that you you want these women to come in if the blues last longer than two weeks. And, and what do you do? How do you approach this problem? Mm-hmm. So Oftentimes, if people are at very high risk for some sort of a a mood disorder or postpartum depression, we'll actually talk to them about going on medications prophylactically, you know, either, you know, 36 weeks, you know, towards the very end of pregnancy or immediately postpartum because, you know, those um, medications can take some time to start working well. All right. And so if so, they're a setup, you treat mm-hmm, them prophylactically. Sometimes, yes. And they can still nurse. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. So then otherwise, we will offer women that are at risk um, a, a, a quicker check-in time. So maybe you're like around two weeks to check in and see how they're doing. And then, of course, again, at that six to eight week um, classic, you know, postpartum check. Um, and then appropriate follow-up after that based on how they're doing at that time. Well, let's uh, imagine that some of the people in the audience are not moms, brand-new moms, and maybe they're the 
you know, family members or the partner of, a husband mm-hmm. of, what yeah. would you like them to keep in mind and take away from this? Right. So I think the biggest thing is that moms need to remember that they need to be very open. They cannot hide this within, within themselves. They cannot fight it out at home alone. They should not do that. Um, there are a lot of, you know, adverse effects that can come in terms of even just bonding with your children and, and bonding with your baby. Um, so we want people to reach out. So we've got, um, we have help for people. Sometimes it's just talking with us, the OB provider. Sometimes it is arranging um, counseling sessions with um, therapists or psychiatrists, and then certainly, um, you know, medications if, um, if, if things are bad enough. We also want to stress natural things, too. Of course, we want people to be exercising and eating properly and getting good sleep. And how can people find your blog? Right. Probably the easiest way is searching Julie Lampa Pregnancy Blog, and that will get you there. Um, I am also on Twitter at Julie Lampa, um, and I always, of course, am giving a shout-out to my blogs as they become published. And it's L-A-M-P-P-A. Correct. All right. Thanks so much, Julie. Great information. Appreciate your being here. Thank you very much. Julie Lampa is an advanced practice provider and certified nurse midwife at Mayo Clinic. She writes the Pregnancy and You blog on mayoclinic.org. Coming up, we'll talk about population health science with Dr. Robert Jacobson. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Healthcare services in this country are probably among the best in the world. Now, that said, there is still a, a wide disparity in the health among different groups of people in different parts of the country. Now, these differences may range from differences in infant mortality to differences in the incidence of various diseases and how long we, how long we live. There is a growing field of health care called population health science that's focusing on ways to eliminate these disparities. It's a big task, and it involves a lot of moving parts. Joining us to talk about this emerging field of population health science is Mayo Clinic pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is also medical director of the Population Health Sciences Program within the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jacobson. Boy, you have a lot of titles. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's an honor to work at Mayo Clinic and have opportunities such as this. And uh, I see population health sciences as a, a, an important and amazing opportunity to go beyond traditional medical care to solve problems that we have uh, with the health of our population, whether we're talking about the community of Rochester, the county, the state, or across the United States. We have a lot of work to do, and population health science can address a lot of concerns that traditional medicine cannot. What does that even mean? Well, it means, if you will, the health outcomes of a group of people, the population of people that's of interest to you, and the um, and the disparities in the health outcomes across that population. Now, so that's, some people do better than others, and you want to know why, or you want to close the gap? Oh, both. We, 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 the science is trying to understand why, why it's there and what can be done to fix it, and then closing the gap. So if you think about it, population health science is 
a way of focusing, a, a way of looking at the problem differently than we've used to. Our uh, old approach in medicine was, for the most part, the physicians would wait till the patients show up at their door and then see them for the visit and then send them on their way. And those encounter-based approaches work for a lot of concerns, but they don't address some of the underlying issues of why whole groups of people suffer with more illness or worse outcomes with the same illness, why uh, certain parts of our population uh, seem to deal have to deal with a lot more chronic illness and its complications than other groups. That's what population health science can inform, and then direct healthcare organizations and other community organizations in public health to do something about it. We think about modern medicine as having a lot to do with genetics and genomics and proteomics, as though our health... Proteomics? Proteomics is sort of the, the next step from genomics, if you will, the whole body of proteins that we carry within us. Now, these things are the stuff of science fiction, very exciting, and they often give you the sense of, well, your health is going to be what your genetics tell you it's going to be. But that's not really true. So much of our health, particularly measured at the population level, is determined by individual behavior, by the social environment, and by the physical environment. And there's only so much you can do in the traditional medical visit to fix any one of those things. Why the most effect that we can have on population health is usually addressing socio economic determinants. You know, the education of our population, um, the financial well-being of our population actually goes uh, very far in determining the health outcomes of that population. So when we look at programs that can help individuals um, uh, complete school on time and get the training they need or the retraining they need, we're actually dramatically improving their health. Now, there's things that the healthcare organization can do as well. Uh, working with community organizations and working with public health, we can go beyond socioeconomic determinants and also look at the way we leave choices for our population in terms of can they make healthier choices. A lot of people throughout Minnesota actually don't have good access to fresh produce and vegetables. They actually are, are for uh, where they live and, uh, and their environment are, are, are actually forced to make poorer choices in terms of nutrition. I or suppose fun- downtown Minneapolis is a lot different than people th- that live out in the farming communities. Right. And we also have farming communities where most of the crops are actually grown for the animals. And actually, you can't get apples, oranges, and bananas as easily there as you might living down the street from a Hy-Vee or a Whole Foods. I've tried to grow bananas in Minnesota, and it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But what we found is that by taking this lens of population health, um, we can start investigating, well, why is it that that group of people is suffering and that group isn't? And what can be done uh, to improve that lot? How can we make um, uh, health in all policies? How can we help people make healthier choices with the choices that they have? It kind of sounds like it's more, uh, it has economics components to it more than traditional medicine would. It does. Um, and in fact, we, we talk about one of the big solutions that came out of the last 10 years was making sure that everyone had uh, health insurance, but that alone isn't going to address many of the concerns of population health. How are we going to improve individual behavior? How are we going to improve the social environment? How are we going to improve the physical environment?
environment so that people are actually benefiting from the health outcomes that others in this country can get. For example, have we designed our town or our community so that you have to drive to the school to pick up your kids, so you have to drive to work, so that you have to drive to the store? Or are we building the community so that walking and cycling are encouraged Mm. and so that regular physical activity an hour or more a day is actually part of your life because your environment supports and encourages it? Um, Is our social environment one where we really encourage people to take time uh, in the leisure time uh, to uh, exercise and to eat right rather than eat a processed uh, packaged meal in front of a TV. Uh, What have we done in terms of how we're designing our community and designing the way we build our lives and our employees' lives? Because the way they've been built does not contribute positively to our health. Right. Got it. All right. So this is sort of like public health on steroids, isn't it? It is, but it calls for not just relegating it to the county or the state public health officials to do the work, but saying this is something the entire community must embrace. We need health in all policies. When the school board is looking at how it's going to build the next building um, or how it's going to route walking and, and busing, how it's going to think about uh, its physical activity of both its staff and its students, um, that's looking at population health. When community organizations such as the YMCA and um, Boys and Girls Club start partnering with family medicine and pediatrics at Mayo and Olmstead to deliver better programs regarding nutrition and physical uh, health, um, a physical activity, that's population health, and that's the sort of movement we're seeing. It's not just the public health nurse. It's now the whole community reexamining what they're doing to improve individual behavior, the social environment, and the physical environment. So it's all very admirable, and I understand what you're trying to do. Uh, but tell us what's the most important thing you've learned so far, and then when you do learn something and discover what ought to be done or should be done, how are you going to implement that, and won't it won't the there be money involved. And where's that going to come from? Well, it sounds like a tall order. So let's take a great example of a problem that we had that we solved right here in the Olmstead County, working with healthcare organizations like Public Health, our our comp- competition, if you will, to Mayo Clinic, Olmsted Medical Center, and the um, private parochial and public schools. We have a big problem in that every child every year is to get the flu vaccine. Uh, and in fact, those starting out the flu vaccine, having never got it before, are supposed to get in two doses. Well, how do you do that? How do you deliver to your population a vaccine in the fall for every single student? We relied on traditional medical encounters. Um, you make a visit with your doctor and get vaccinated. Well, that's a failure with the flu vaccine. We weren't getting in anywhere near uh, half the population, much less the entire population of children. So what we did was reach out and say, you know what, we have to change um, the social environment and the way individuals behave with vaccines. We bring the vaccines into the schools. And partnering with our competition, if you will, and with all of the schools and with public health, we were able to create, and now we're seven years going strong, a school-based vaccination program. Now, we still charge the flu vaccine to the insurance company, but the nurses are bringing the vaccines to children, and we're using um, electronic communication with the parents and electronic registration with the parents so that we can make it a smooth program of vaccination rather than one that relies on the parent pulling the child out of the classroom to have a visit when they're well with the doctor who has no room in the schedule for all 
these additional visits in the fall anyway and was hoping to prevent doctor visits through the flu vaccine and not the opposite. That's a great example of population health management, not just relying on public health, but in fact, a number of partners throughout the community. I like it. I, I, did, work. I, I used that system this fall, and my kids got their flu shots at school. It was wonderful. Great. We've been talking about population health management with Mayo Clinic pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Thanks for being here, Dr. Jacobson. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.